0: And now we are officially <clears throat> officially uh, going to stop uh, on the air on the yeah. air <laughs> still, with perhaps a little bit of a delay, but what can you do? We're bi-continental now. Uh, totally. I don't know if that's the way I would necessarily describe it, but multi-continental. It,
1: I identify as bi
0: Fair enough. Um, mm. Podmias Worldwide, examining the crisis of modern capitalism from a socialist perspective as we transition towards a podcast-based economy, also a YouTube-based economy. Yes. Check us out on YouTube, search for Podmias. I'm on the ground here in Bolivia recording some stuff, talking to people here and getting people's reaction as well to the latest news here from Bolivia. So we have some stuff we're pretty proud of there. So definitely check us out on there.
1: Yeah, good content.
0: In addition to continuing to follow us on whatever podcast feed you use. So presumably you've got us on there if you're hearing us now. Before we get into the meat of this episode, or uh, the carne, as they say in Spanish, uh, a few quick headlines, something about the royal family and Oprah, I don't know, I guess the royal family is racist, who would have thought the scions of a centuries-old imperialist legacy would have some problematic racial tendencies. Any thoughts I'm on that? I'm conflicted about that one.
1: Yeah, I- I'm conflicted about that one. Not, not exactly conflicted, but it's like... I think that the royal family, I mean, especially with the way they handled the whole Prince Andrew thing, like there's nothing left worth protecting there. Right. The English should just do away with this nonsense that they have. It's just a vestige of colonialism that they do well to rid themselves of and in as much as Megan and Harry are doing their part to try to throw a wrecking ball at that great on the other hand I think all news regarding the royal family is like I, I just can't think of any other news item that isn't worth more than that. It's basically Us Weekly grade content for the likes of major news channels. And every minute spent on that is a minute not spent on literally anything else that could be more substantive.
0: As I saw someone put it once, this is what happens when you don't have a full bourgeois revolution. It really is a relic of another time. You do have uh, so-called Republicans In Great Britain. I think Jeremy Corbyn was one of them, actually, although he didn't talk about it as much when he became leader of the Labour Party. But, you know, people who rightfully think that they should get rid of the royal family. And yeah, this is a vestige of another time. It's not needed. Next up, Andrew Cuomo, I guess, in some trouble. Couldn't happen to a more deserving asshole. I don't have much to say about him other than anything that keeps him further away from the presidency is a good thing in my mind because this guy is not only is he just like an annoying liberal with like annoying liberal politics, but definitely has kind of like an authoritarian streak in him. And so, yeah, nice to see him sweating a little right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was like grumblingly, privately frustrated with how much positive press he was getting throughout all of last uh, spring and summer just by sort of play acting as a strong leader. There was even that absolutely pathetic jezebel take i don't even remember the name of the journalist. and lucky for her i don't because the headline was something like in love with andrew cuomo like she was hot for this guy like because of his stupid press conferences and everything i mean that is the bare minimum and it, we knew that he was still looking to cut medicaid to the tune of billions of dollars that yeah. pre-COVID, he was frustrated with the surplus of hospital beds. Like, well, what do we need those for? Like,
0: to, Hey, to trim- what do we need those for?
1: Yeah, hey, what do we need those for? You get a good price for those. You just get rid of them. Come on. We have a
0: nice Italian restaurant here. Why what are you is taking it, space all these hospitals? The-
1: yeah, what is the a Ritz-Carlton here? Oh, he was like embracing this whole don't prepare for a rainy day at all. Just in time logistics" bullshit that totally ruined our system and totally unprepared to confront the coronavirus in the first place. He was all for that stuff. After COVID hit, he was actively going against expanding Medicaid. All this, he survived. That's what's so frustrating. All this, he survived. He even was sort of getting past the recent revelation of the thousands and thousands of deaths in nursing homes that he denied, that he hid from the public.
0: I think play acting is the right word for it. I mean, that really is all it takes to impress a lot of people, I mean, if you're some privileged figure of the media class writing for Jezebel or whatever it is, I mean, just the fact that this guy comes across as like strong and assertive, that's literally like all it takes because these people are fine either way, people who make up the privileged corporate media class in our country.
1: That's very, very well said. Yeah. Well, you can only have that kind of take if you're thoroughly unaffected by the realities of COVID and you
0: know or you're just someone who passively that, absorbs msnbc or whatever
1: you can only have that take of cuomo being some freaking sex symbol do you remember that photo of him where his nipples just look so freaking bumpy everyone was thinking he had nipple rings like imagine right. having that on your chest he's just like <laughs> molded over pepperonis on 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 each of your like what the hell, I'm sorry. Anything to describe someone with that kind of body is sexy. Dude, come on, just get it together.
0: I'm just, I don't know. I've never seen the appeal of that kind of like hardware like, I'm just like afraid, like, I don't know, like a finger is going to catch something at some point And then <laughs> uh, to each their own, like, uh, I don't know, nose ring can be kind of cute, but I don't know, to each their own.
1: Until the sexual harassment, sexual assault uh, allegations came around, he was even surviving the revelation about the excess deaths in nursing homes. That's, that's wild. That's really yeah. wild. It should be that and everything in the last year that's taking him down. But you know what? I'll take anything.
0: One last headline here, COVID stimulus finally passed by by Biden without the minimum wage hike. Senate parliamentarian deciding that this couldn't be included in the stimulus bill. And rather than just ignoring that, overriding it, it was passed without it. I don't know, this for me is kind of like another area of disappointment with the squad, anyone you consider progressive or on the left within the Democratic Party. I feel like you could have had a block of people who said we refused to vote for this in the House without the minimum wage hike. And Democrats majority is such that that would have made a difference. I don't know. What's your take on this?
1: First of all, it, it's frustrating that Biden is not getting the blame for any of this. It falls squarely at mm-hmm. his feet.
0: I think it just shows that this minimum wage hike, I mean, it just it's not going to be passed outside of the context of putting it with this COVID stimulus, which means that it's not going to be passed now. And, look, um, look, look, look,
1: unless they do anything about this, unless they do anything about the filibuster, right? Anything they want to pass is going to have to pass through reconciliation. So it, it, I think it's still possible, it they, they can do reconciliation, what, like two more times this year? And that pretty much means, I mean, to only have three opportunities to pass any legislation in one year means that all of that stuff is going to have to be must pass. And so I think there's still an opportunity to find a way to apply pressure in such a way that they can't do this again in one of the two opportunities that will come up over the next year.
0: I mean, I think you're right that the buck partially stops with the executive Branch here. There doesn't seem to be any appetite to criticize Biden outside of maybe a few strongly worded tweets, not even directed at Biden. But I mean, have you know, you, th- had there's you no appetite
1: of the parliamentarian.
0: No, and, you yeah,
1: know. no one had because it's bullshit. No one, it's a bullshit, but it's a good barrier, enough excuse.
0: It's a good enough excuse for people who wanted one. There doesn't seem to be any appetite for forcefully criticizing Biden here. The squad could have come out and really said, we demand that Biden overrule the parliamentarian, pass this with a minimum wage increase, or we're not gonna vote for this. The whole idea behind running so-called socialists within the Democratic Party has been supposedly to take over the party, to really forcefully criticize the party and, and to transform it. We don't even see a strong criticism of Biden at this point over something that that was assumed to have been a given to, to, to happen.
1: Another frustrating aspect of this was, yeah, I mean, this person isn't considered part of the squad, but you know, the head of the Progressive Caucus in the House, Pramila Jayapal, Afterwards, in maybe a radio interview or something, I heard her saying that she spoke with Biden on the phone after this passed, and he reiterated to her his commitment to the $15 minimum wage. And she said that she believes him, and she looks forward to working with him on that. With this measure here, he just showed you that he's willing to shoot it down.
0: It's not as if Biden isn't a supremely uh, narcissistic, dishonest, throughout his entire career, a politician who just lies constantly. Going back to when he plagiarized campaign speech back in the 80s, you know, to that debate against Bernie where he just lied constantly about his record. Said he had
1: nine super PACs and Bernie was like, name him and he was like, come
0: on, man. Biden is a sleazeball and should be talked about more. I mean, there's so much room to criticize this guy and it's just not being done by anyone who considers himself on the left within the Democratic party. But okay, getting to countries with actual competent left-wing movements. This is our Latin America update episode. Got some exciting news that's come out recently from Bolivia, from Brazil. We're we're
1: both dancing a little jig to the news of Janine Añez getting arrested. And what is disappointing, but not at all unsurprising, is that our positive feelings about this development are not widely shared across the Western media landscape.
0: Yeah, I was just telling someone the other day, I went from being very pleasantly surprised, very happy about the news, about Anya's arrest, to just becoming like gradually a little bit annoyed as I was like reading all the headlines with how it was being covered in in Western media. But, you know, we'll get to that. So just... To kind of like catch everyone up on this, if you've been living in a box, much like uh, Janine Anyes when she was arrested, apparently she was found hiding in a box with a pretty ridiculous t-shirt. I recommend that people go find the photos of her.
1: It was a box under her bed, right?
0: Is that what it was? That's what I um, heard
1: was that it was a box under her bed. I I, I think I just think that's funny because if I were to hide from the cops, like in a box under my bed. I do have such a box. It's just that they would find me in there with like my Nintendo 64 and old games. And they would find me with wads and wads of cash as she was.
0: She was in there with her favorite t-shirt. I can't take credit for this comment. I saw someone posted this somewhere else. This is really quite disgraceful treatment of Latin America's first wine mom president. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> It it wasn't certain whether Janine Añez was alive or dead until they opened the box. She was Schrodinger's cat with that t-shirt. I'm just trying to make a Schrodinger's cat joke and I'm failing, that's all.
0: (laughs) Or, you know, she might have been in Brazil. People feared that she might have absconded to Brazil where I'm sure Bolsonaro would have given her a safe haven. But nope, she was not quite competent enough to make it out of Bolivia. She stuck around. Which is par for the course. I mean, nothing that she has done during her time in government or anywhere else can be described as competent. She also just ate shit. She was running for governor of a state of Beni in Bolivia and Gat. I think it was less than 15%, which is pretty funny. Uh, so, not the best week for Janine Anyas.
1: Um, not at all. Uh, and. The, the feeling on the streets that you're getting with your just man on the street interviews with people, it seems they're pretty happy about it. And for, for them, there isn't a sentence long enough for her as far as they can express, right?
0: Yeah, I went up to El Alto the other day, which is, yes, you could kind of call it the indigenous capital of the country. It's this city right alongside La Paz, where a lot of indigenous people have moved to over the years, which has actually become larger than La Paz now. And we should say it's not just Añez, but several members of her illegitimate government that have arrest warrants out for them. Some of the rest of them have been arrested. Some of the others they're still looking for, still looking for Murillo, I guess. And they're also starting to arrest uh, some of these leaders of these so-called civic committees around the country, these terrorist groups, really. They arrested this guy, Yasir Molina. He was the leader of the Resistencia Juvenil Cochala in Cochabamba. These were the people who came out during the coup in 2019 really just terrorizing everyone and even with guns which are actually illegal in Bolivia. Who knows how these right-wing shock troops conveniently end up with all the guns and the cash they need. Who knows? Odd, it's right? Very odd.
1: You had a similar situation in Italy, I mean not similar but you know. There is a parallel with what happened in Italy during the years of lead where there were just these like caches of weapons all over the place and neo-fascists were Constantly able to get a hold of these things somehow.
0: Right. From what I've read, at the time, Argentina was very cooperative with this coup attempt. This was Argentina under Mauricio Macri. And there were weapons that were allowed to cross the border. And also, Argentina's intelligence service assisted with the whole thing. But yeah, starting to perhaps see some justice now. So yeah, there are arrest warrants out for several more people. We just recorded an interview with my friend Alejandra here, which we're going to release shortly. I was meeting with her in La Paz, and we got the news right after I left her house. And then I, I kind of happened upon the big protest, and it was in the south zone of La Paz. There were a bunch of right-wingers who came out to protest this alleged persecution that the right is suffering, a bunch of mosque counter-protesters who... To me, outnumbered the right-wingers, which was nice to see even in sort of this wealthier south zone of La Paz. But as Western media is, is making it clear now, this is very much reigniting political tensions. As Reuters, that was the way they put it in their headline. When you're arresting an illegitimate coup president who is responsible for the deaths of at least 36 people, you really got to think about the political tensions, the political fallout. You hate to see things be so tense that, that someone might face justice for slaughtering at least 36 innocent protesters.
1: I mean, let the past be the past. I mean, why do they have to mm. be like this? All I'll, kidding aside, it's like PR. It's like they have to find some way to toe the very anti Morales, anti sort of autonomous control line against everyone across Latin America and Central America. And so, how do you do that when, you know, this Anya's person who Not only very clearly did a coup, but was also a total, like, unlikable, insane ethno-nationalist theocrat. How do you manage to frame that negatively? You go, oh, well, it's just all of this. You sort of do a pox on both their houses nonsense, as if there's any equivalence between what she represented and what the mass party represents it's absurd
0: yeah and of course the right wing here is uh, crying persecution the media is kind of repeating this line that this is a persecution of the right of political opponents the headline from france 24 was uh bolivia ex-president anez arrested in crackdown quote unquote, on opposition. The Associated Press called it a crackdown. This is a a crackdown. It's a pretty restrained one. I mean, no protesters have been killed. As I said, I was out on the streets the other night. People were freely protesting this. And no one is fearing for their life right now. There's a, a judicial process that's playing out. And rightfully so. But it's, yeah, I mean, it goes to show kind of the propaganda function of of Western media, which is not something that exists in the form of journalists being told what to say. It just exists because of the like natural sort of tendencies and and biases under capitalism. It's, It's, you know, the media... Tends to be sympathetic towards people on the right in Bolivia. If Western journalists travel to Bolivia, they're meeting and talking with people on the right and they're staying in the wealthier neighborhoods and that's who they're interviewing. And you had a term for that. What was that like parachute? Parachute journalism, yeah. Yeah. Journalists who, who visit places like Bolivia, they're not going to the poor areas. They are not gauging the opinion of Morales supporters, typically. And above all, they're just repeating the U.S. State Department line or the British Home Office line. Just repeating of the line of these intelligence services and the foreign offices of these Western nations who have always been anti-Morales and, of course, are anti-socialist. So that's the way that this propaganda is, is played out in Western media. It's just a natural tendency, really, if you look at what all the biases are towards in our society. So we're
1: talking about this broader Western narrative, right, that exists across U.S. and Europe, which is why we're talking about France 24 and Deutsche Welle. We didn't go into much detail about Deutsche Welle, but that's like basically German France and, and that that was well as well is a very much a sort of both sides ish kind of kind of narrative that they tow. And the most egregious of it actually comes from American outlets like The Washington Post and The New York Times. Like Washington Post says the coup in 2019 was alleged. Like yeah. the word they use is alleged. And the New York Times says many called it a coup. That's the, that's their phrase. And it's amazing because the whole thing that sort of maybe gave legitimacy to the power of Janine Agnes was the notion that maybe there was election, that there was election fraud. And that narrative totally collapsed despite them towing that line at the time of the election in November of 2019 to the point where the New York Times basically shamefully admitted as much in June of last year with another story that, that while it didn't acknowledge the New York Times terrible position from the year before, basically said like, oh yeah, it looks like there wasn't fraud in the election. Go figure. And so they've already admitted that that position is not tenable. And now they're back saying, oh, many called it a coup. It was alleged it was a coup. Well, if you take power, and after claiming that there was election fraud, and there wasn't election fraud, I think that's pretty clearly a coup. I mean, what, what would they have thought? Do you think they would have had this kind of excessive even-handedness if Trump had been successful in, in taking over the Capitol on January 6th? Because, right. oh, well, there were claims of election fraud. Like, no, it's 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 not, no. And and the way they apply this to Countries overseas, I mean, talk about looking down your nose at a whole country.
0: When it comes to foreign policy, international affairs, mainstream media is just not willing to take a stance on anything really until they have the permission from the right people, which is basically the U.S. State Department. They have to have the permission of their home governments before they are willing to take a side on something, which I think the evidence for is pretty clear now, that there was no electoral fraud, that this was... I mean, this was essentially, it was a military coup. The military, I guess, kindly requested that Morales uh, step down.
1: Yeah. At the end of the gun.
0: Yeah. And it's Citations Needed is the best at analyzing this kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of it is in the form of these loaded terms that are used, right? Like we're being told that this is a crackdown on the uh, opposition in Bolivia. Would they describe it as a crackdown when Trump was impeached for the riding at the Capitol? You know, all these loaded terms. Regime is a big one. It's, it's always the it's the Maduro regime. Yeah, it's not a country. The, it's a regime. Yeah. It's a regime, right? Yeah. The, the state of foreign reporting is just, uh, it's pretty horrible. Were there any other headlines you wanted to highlight here? Well, I do want to,
1: look, uh, I'm going to give myself a shameless plug for an old article I wrote on Medium, but I don't give a fuck. You should go and check it out just because I wrote it and I think it's good. This was back in 2019 when Evo Morales was originally forced into exile and what I did was basically just go back through the New York Times's coverage of similar situations and coups in other countries, famous examples like Guatemala in 53, Chile in what was it 73, and then you know how they covered Venezuela, the attempted coup against Chavez in 2002. Like they're just they're just chronically wrong with their reporting yeah. on this stuff. When you have politicians and media sources just in all kinds of situations where someone is always getting something wrong, you, you tend to lapse into this thought of like, well, are they stupid or evil, right? It's always along that spectrum, right? And with the New York Times, it's so clearly deliberate and malicious. Our establishment media, when it comes to foreign policy in particular, has no independence from the government, has never, ever shown independence from the government. I think Chenk Yuger, like just talking about a different story, but one that I think is revealing about how establishment media covers foreign policy, right? They basically cover everything just the way the government wants it. And then every once in a while, have a massive expose that gives them just enough credibility for you to keep coming back. Right, like the Washington Post. What was it last year, maybe a year and a half ago? They got leaks of uh, Afghanistan war logs, and they showed how the whole thing's been a disaster from day one. No one knew what the overall mission was, what were they were there to do, etc. How it's just been a total mess for the whole time that we've been there. Right, this was a story broken by the Washington Post, and it's very, very valuable. But guess what? Next week, when the Pentagon has a press conference about what's going on in Afghanistan or about what's going on anywhere. The Washington Post is going to dutifully toe their line. They're not going to have a critical perspective despite this wonderful expose they put out. And so that's, and, and you can apply that across the board when it comes to foreign policy.
0: Yeah. And again, I think it's just once you understand the the factors at play behind particularly international reporting, it all makes sense. Everyone has a bias. Everyone has a class interest and a class perspective. And who, who do you think the people are that the New York Times, for example, is hiring to do foreign reporting. I mean, in general, rabble rousers and, and socialists who think that the United States can be a malignant force in the world, they don't go to Columbia Journalism School and get hired by the New York Times. People who are people who are sympathetic to leftist and socialist movements in Latin America are not the kind of people who tend to get hired by the New York Times. You can go and check the the portfolio of work by any one of these journalists that report on these things in the New York Times or, or the Washington Post, and you can see their track record or even look back decades, as you were talking about it, all of these, these dictatorships in the past throughout Latin America and all these atrocities that have been committed in the past. And you can just see how they've just repeatedly dropped the ball.
1: And when it's that consistent that they drop the ball, it's no accident it's no accident. They're they're using their credibility as a supposedly independent source from the government or from specific interests within the government. We have this false veneer of separation when it comes to that stuff that is really not warranted. You're not going to find that critical coverage there. And yeah, as you pointed out, the journalists that do provide that coverage, don't reside at the New York Times. And in their partial defense, I would say they don't reside there anymore. There used to be Cy Hirsch at the the New York Times. There used to be Chris Hedges at the New York Times. They had some give there. And even those kinds of voices have steadily been exercised from the newsrooms there. You want real kind of coverage, you gotta look for independent sources. You gotta look for people with, with sub stacks and Patreon accounts. And this is something that that establishment types clutch their pearls at, but you know what? They're doing the coverage and, uh, and they're doing it in a more defensible way.
0: Yeah, well said. It's something that annoys me because I mean, these are matters of life and death for these people down here. There were at least three dozen people who lost their lives because of this coup in 2019. And it really is frustrating To see that not only are they facing the atrocities that they're facing here in Latin America and the the abuses of these right-wing figures, but they can't even get a fair shake in the foreign media. And I think if you're talking about leftists in Latin America and, and socialists, these people know what they're up against. And again, these are people who are in situations of life and death down here. And really put a lot on the line to try to achieve progress in their countries. For them, it's I think it's probably just par for the course. The biggest issue for activists in Latin America is not that they're not being given a fair shot by the New York Times, because they're never going to be. But it is frustrating for an American audience. I would like to think that these people could have some sense of solidarity and support or at least acknowledgement of their struggles from least self-avowed leftists in the United States. But far too often, it it doesn't happen. And it's precisely because of the biases of our media, which I think sometimes people just haven't learned to to see through.
1: I think the people who will get a fair shake or flattering take from the New York Times will be those who find a way to sell Bolivia's lithium to Elon Musk. I think that's when we'll see uh, a glowing portrait. Elon Musk will will back some faction down there and they'll set fire to some building and they'll have freaking like neon pink uniforms or something like that. It's always <laughs> some weird shit like that. Right. Like the Pancasila's had in Indonesia had like orange camouflage. Like it's like some soccer team's away Jersey or whatever the fuck it'll be like some weird color like that. And they'll be like, Oh, Bolivian freedom fighters to take action. That's when you'll see a, a gushing headline when it's firmly in the bag like that yeah well that's what a definite line to toe
0: oh that's what it is there has to be some authority figure that gives them permission to cover these things in a flattering way i mean whether it's you joke about whether it's elon musk or or you but it has to be some kind of like in their mind an authority figure that gives them permission to to report on these things in a certain way i mean it continues to be a pet peeve of mine that There is not more solidarity from the United States. I mean, now that Biden is in the presidency and is, in theory, a little bit more persuadable, at least than Trump would have been on certain things. For me, it's like it's like where are the protests against the sanctions in Venezuela that are killing tens of thousands? If if someone knows about them going on, I'll gladly do all I can to promote them and be a part of them and help to make that a success. But it's I think far too often there is just kind of a inward looking nature with the the left in the United States. and uh... I think
1: there's something to worry about here on that front. When when the United States wants to Uh, sanction a country, it'll be as capricious as it likes and will use the media to to fan the flames on whatever that issue is. And Janine Añez did a coup and murdered dozens of people. All of the hallmarks of someone who should definitely be in jail once she's out of power are there. And yet yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the State Department, the European Parliament, the forces of Western sort of transatlantic power structure writ large. I, I wouldn't say this is necessarily a prediction, but I if it happened, it wouldn't surprise me if they come out with a statement condemning political persecution of the opposition and all that to then maybe sanction Bolivia now. This could be this sort of coverage over time with actions abetted by those forces could lead to a sanctions regime. And it's going to all be because Bolivia doesn't want to give us lithium for nothing, that they actually want a fair price for it.
0: Yeah, I'm really holding my breath, hoping that that's uh, not going to be the case. We've seen from multiple case studies, I mean, Iraq in the 90s and Iran now. I mean, just the real damage that sanctions can do to a country and can do to people. Yeah, it's crippling. Um, It's totally crippling. So, yeah. And also,
1: one thing we also have going for us on this issue is that, so there was all this big to-do about the elections in 2019, and how they were potentially marred by fraud, et cetera. But with the ones that put Luis Arce in power, there weren't even such accusations. Like he was elected and most of Western media, after having been caught by researchers who looked at the election data in 2019 found it all to be above board, they weren't about to accuse willy-nilly the the Bolivians of committing election fraud again in 2020. So they have that going for them as far as having demonstrated very recently that they can go through a political process like a normal country.
0: I think journalists covering Latin America, covering foreign affairs. I mean, they could use a healthy dose of cynicism. They should probably read Devil's chessboard. They should realize the just the the role that that western intelligence plays in shaping perceptions of these places and down to shaping this entire, you know, completely unsubstantiated narrative of fraud in these elections here. And it's nothing new. This is what, you know, happened in the 80s when the Sandinistas were democratically elected in Nicaragua. It's all of a sudden it's the State Department was insistent that, oh, these elections are illegitimate. These were unfair elections. And meanwhile, there were elections in other countries that were electing right-wing allies of the United States and their elections were deemed to be free and fair. And it's, it's, yeah, I, I I think these reporters could use a healthy dose of cynicism and independent thinking and probably a history lesson. On the subject of Bolivia, Bolivia also had elections. It was about a week ago now. These were subnational elections, as they call them. Basically, everything below the level of the presidency and National Congress. So these were elections for governorships of the different departments around the country, as they call them, essentially their states, mayoralities of uh, cities across the country, and also elections to uh, territorial assemblies. And we were talking with Alejandra about this. We recorded another interview with my friend Alejandra here, which we're going to release shortly. But these elections were fairly par for the course for Bolivian politics. The MAS, Movement Towards Socialism Party, won the governorship outright in the departments of Potosí, Oruro, and Cochabamba. They are also going to win in La Paz territory. It uh, remains to be seen if they're going to have the margin yet to win in the first round. But And then they're leading in uh, Taria and Pando. And it's also going to go to a second round for the governorship in Chukisaka. The MAS is in within striking distance there. Really not a bad result, all told, for the MAS. The opposition only won outright for the governorship in the Department of Beni. And also Luis Fernando Camacho, everyone's favorite Bolivian fascist, won the governorship of Santa Cruz, unfortunately. So he's going to continue to have a platform and a a voice in Bolivian politics, unfortunately. And then as far as the mayoralities go in Bolivia, The MAS, they lost most of the mayoral races for the major cities throughout the country, which also tends to be typical. You know, the MAS' core of support is in rural areas throughout the country. They tend to have a harder time in the cities. Bolivia in general is a very rural country compared to other Latin American countries. I mean, Brazil, for example, the population is very much based in the cities. Bolivia is still fairly rural. The MAS did win the mayoralities in Sucre, which was kind of interesting. It was kind of a case of a divided opposition there. They won the mayorality in Cobija and also in Aurora. So yeah, this will all be fascinating for the the two or three listeners we have who are familiar with all these places in Bolivia, who I guess haven't already <laughs> been following the news of the elections there. Did you did you have any comment on that?
1: One thing that, that Alice mentioned to us, and that's definitely reflected in these results, is how much of, of an established leftist power Mas is. And you said that it's probably the most successful left wing political movement, uh, arguably in the world. And uh, even though they didn't win absolutely everything, this still bears that out.
0: Yeah, I think I mean, I would say, in my opinion, the most successful leftist electoral party. I mean, there are other movements, right, I mean, right. the Chinese Communist Party, probably fairly successful, I think you could say, but just in terms of like, the, the length of time, they've been able to hold power in Bolivia, and just the extent of what they've been able to do for the population here in terms of poverty reduction, and in terms of really modernizing the country, it's, it's, uh, it's quite impressive. And uh, I think there's a lot to draw inspiration from. If I were a leftist and I only followed US politics, I think I might be pretty depressed. But you know, there are definitely bright spots around the world and places to draw inspiration from. And and Bolivia is definitely one of them. It's also just a matter of the opposition being very much fragmented in Bolivia. It's it's probably more than a dozen opposition parties who hold various mayoralities and, and seats and positions of influence throughout the country. So they just haven't been able to coalesce. And part of the reason is because politics can be very regional in in Bolivia, I mean, of course, over in Santa Cruz, where they've had a kind of the separatist movement, they have their own parties in Santa Cruz, which are distinct from the parties in the area of La Paz and the East, which are distinct from the parties that they have in the North and in, in Beni and places like that. If the MAS hadn't done as well as they did in these elections, which I, I think they did fairly well, the opposition is just so fragmented that for the future, it's it's going to be hard to see them mounting a real united front. Against the Moss, which you love to see. This is my wheelhouse. So it's, I don't expect everyone to be as obsessed with like Bolivian politics as I am.
1: But it's, uh, it is something to obsess about, if only to look at an example for ourselves. I mean, we're in, Mm. you could say that given our history and the context here, it's a bit apples and oranges, but they've had to contend with our constant attempts at trying to change them, which usually are very serious, lead, lead to bloodshed and, and, and cause a lot of strife at, in, in order for us to get our way. And so if they can do that there, yeah, I, I believe in a left-wing populist movement here uh, a little more thanks to what they're able to do there.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. They're up against a lot here in Bolivia. I mean, any, any Latin American country, any country in the global south, Is up against a lot because it's not only a matter of building a left wing movement, but it's a matter of not getting cooed by the United States. It's, It's a matter of trying not to bring sanctions upon yourself and really existing in this global economy that is defined by other larger more powerful entities. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm sympathetic towards somewhere like China, because there are people who will say, oh, they've abandoned socialism, they've gone to the right, they've regressed into capitalism, they don't exist in a world of their making, they exist within a world that is of our making that is of the United States and Western Europe's making. And so the challenge for these countries is to gradually build power, and influence in a, in a game where they don't make the rules. And, and so their fight is unique in that sense. But I think it's also similar if you're talking about somewhere like Bolivia. Our task in the United States is to build power in a liberal democracy. You're not going to follow the example of the Russian revolution here. This isn't 1950s China with imperial rulers that we're up against. This is a, a place where we have a liberal democracy that a lot of people still put some faith in, and as socialists, we know all of the flaws all too well of this supposed democracy that we have here. But that's our task, is to build power and influence within a liberal democracy. And that's what they're doing in Bolivia. And for something like 15 years now, that's what the MAS has done in Bolivia. They've held down to power for that long and really accomplished quite a lot. So... In that sense, I think there's a lot we can learn from them.
1: The reversal of Lula's imprisonment in Brazil and the arrest of Anya's in Bolivia are two events that I'm just trying to imagine their equivalence happening in the United States. And it's just, it's so nice to dream. These events give you a sense that something better is possible. And we really need to get serious about conjuring the political will and structures that would make those kinds of results possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's well said. And we need to get serious about these things. And I don't think you can do it if you're not like, if you're not looking to examples throughout the world and you're not following politics in places like Bolivia, other left-wing movements throughout the world. I mean, I, I just don't know where you draw your strength from, your encouragement from, if you're not paying attention to these, these places around the world where they're having some success. So, I mean, for me, that's the value of, of following these things. Brazil... Just recently, just a few days ago, it was announced by a member of the Supreme Court that the charges against Lula, former president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, the ruling was that these charges weren't under the jurisdiction of the original court, which means that his political rights are restored. He is going to be allowed to run for president again next year, as he wanted to in 2018, with the polls showing that he... Certainly would have beaten Bolsonaro, would have beaten any other challenger. Brazil, it's been tough for the country they've had to put up with. I mean, really, I think just the most ridiculous, incompetent elected leader of, I think, any country right now.
1: If I could just give people a plug i mean if you really want to know what he was about in in a
0: sort of uh digestible chunk one of michael
1: brooks's greatest moments was getting his interview with lula and it's really fascinating it's definitely worth a watch check out the michael brooks show on youtube he gets into the nitty-gritty about specific challenges and policies and how he addressed them and it's great
0: yeah michael brooks was definitely a big fan Brazil, largest economy in South America, ruled by Lula by the left for several years. He was a uh, kind of a member of the Pink Tide in good standing, maybe not as radical as other members of the Pink Tide, but didn't take the bait to criticize whether it was Chavez or other Pink Tide leaders. When the media tried to bait him into it, he has said that after this whole ordeal, he's moved further to the left. He's kind of become more radicalized by this. One of the things he has said is that he regrets not undertaking media reform in Brazil, because the media, if people know much about the media of Brazil. It's just almost hegemonically controlled by this one company, O Globo, which is kind of as if like ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC were all just the same company. That's the media landscape in Brazil. This one company who supported the uh, military dictatorship when they ruled Brazil. And They were just uniformly every member of the press just about against Lula and against the left and the workers party. It tends to be one of the more controversial issues. If you try to do any kind of media reform in these countries, people immediately say, oh, it's this is a violation of free speech and the sovereignty and the freedom of the press. I think that's been a real distinction. Countries where the pink tide, where the left has been more successful, like Venezuela, like Bolivia, have been countries where there has been an attempt at media reform, where something has been done about the issue of hegemonic corporate control of the media. In Bolivia, you have Bolivia TV, the the state-controlled, kind of like their equivalent of PBS, except kind of a bigger deal. Bolivia TV in Bolivia, they actually, they give a fair shot to to the MAS, to the left-wing, to Evo Morales' party, as opposed to the rest of the corporate media in South America, which is just uniformly against the left. And You see that in any country that you want to look at. So anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it's, I just think that is one of the things that definitely makes the difference if you are willing to kind of take on this corporate media, which really like molds the minds and the opinions of people. If people are looking for an English language source on Brazil, uh, Brazil Wire, very, very excellent. Brian Meir. Spelled with an S. Spelled with, yes. It was actually the way they spell Brazil in Brazil. B-R-A-S-I-L. He's been on top of this from the beginning, pointing out that this has been a coup against the Workers Party, against Dilma and Lula, and pointing even before like the clear evidence of it came out, pointing out that this is very likely kind of a uh, U.S.-backed attempt to undermine the left, and it was just proven to be. right. So I can't recommend Brazil Wire enough if you're looking for, like I say, English language news about Brazil. Yeah, Um, I mean,
1: it's also... um, One of the takes I had about what was going on in Brazil last year was about how they... In particular, as it related to Dilma, they went after her for corruption. With Lula, a lot of it was fabricated, right? But with Dilma, there actually is some smoking gun to point to. What that doesn't acknowledge is that in Brazil, a lot of wheels get greased, and no matter what you want to do, if you want to, you know, if you want to get shit done, you you might have to scratch the back of gatekeepers that are in your way. If you, if people want to say that that happened. Under Lula and Dilma, I'm not going to deny it so much as to say that they did it to Get Brazil off of the UN hunger index, and to educate people, like th- there's corruption, and there's not even to validate all the charges against them. Like I know I, I'm not as familiar with Dilma, but I think with, with Dilma there were some things as far as the, the 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 PT the party making payments in ways that were kind of sketchy. It's like yeah, but that's what every party's doing there all the time to get whatever they want done. You know? Yeah. Like, were but this that... thing with this supposed apart. But then also yeah. Lula with fabricated that that was definitely definitely not about board
0: so yeah i mean there are a lot of features of brazilian politics that had kind of just it always been around. I mean, you could say a corrupt. But the thing with, with Dilma is that none of these were impeachable offenses that she was accused of. And it was just a blatantly political thing from top to bottom. I mean, you had Bolsonaro in the Congress dedicating his impeachment vote to the military uh, general who tortured Dilma under the dictatorship. I mean, and other members of Congress who were more corrupt than Dilma, who would also be implicated in Lava Giotto voting to impeach Dilma for corruption. I mean, it was kangaroo court from top to bottom. But yeah, Lula, I mean, he is a fascinating figure and real kind of working class credentials. Born poor, was a shoeshine boy as a kid. Worked his way up, eventually became a union leader. He's actually missing, I don't know if you knew, he's missing a finger on his left hand from a factory accident from when he worked in a factory. You don't always see it in photos, but missing a finger on his left hand. So he's walked the walk. And again, was just a a good showing of solidarity with other members of the pink tide cooperating in regional integration efforts like UNISOR and other kind of integration attempts that were made under the pink tide, as you said, took Brazil off the world hunger map, someone who was just beloved by the poor, and left office with I think it was close to a 90% approval rating when he left office. So Solid guy, and uh, you see the devotion that his his fans had towards him, his supporters had towards him. Every day he was in prison, they would gather outside of the prison, within earshot of his cell, and and every morning they would shout "Bom Dia, Presidente Lula, Good morning," and they would shout "Good night" to him every night, just to kind of keep him company and to to show their devotion to them. These were people, you had people who were literally starving before Lula, who lived in just absolute destitution, no electricity. And Lula really did a lot for these people. And, and you see why they had such devotion. And, um, and
1: beyond that, I want to add, he had really impressive political instincts on the international scene as well. And this was something that he touched on in his interview with Michael Brooks, where he was talking about going to, I forget which summit exactly, maybe the G20 or some other kind of reunion of world leaders and Iran being ostracized and talking about how all these other Countries were were using fighting words against them and talking about how they were at an impasse and not able to strike a deal with Iran because of how, oh, you just can't, you know, there's no reasoning with these people. They're they're mad, I tell you. And how he took the initiative and talked to them himself and basically found out from them that there are overtures for coming to solutions on things like the pursuit of a nuclear weapon, sanctions, things like that, how these kinds of seemingly intractable things could be resolved. And they sort of went off to the side and and started hammering out their own deal, just straight up Brazil to Iran. And he was interested in doing that. And he was doing it and then was shut down by NATO interests, basically. And according to him, they basically told him like, you're Brazil, okay? You're getting too big for your britches, like doing this kind of stuff. And he could have helped. He could have helped like bring peace in the Middle East, this guy. He, he, was, yeah. he was dealing with the Iranians. So they were happy to deal with him. And he was hammering out a deal that would have been beneficial, but the details aren't too fresh in my mind, but that's a fascinating part of the Michael Brooks interview, and I urge people to check it, if only for that, to show that he had the instincts not just in, in this sort of domestic populist sense, but for broader international peace.
0: Well, I mean, it really does show the North-South divide. I mean, Brazil exactly. you know, is a large enough country and has has a large enough economy to be a world superpower, but the tone is, is, is exactly like you said. It's like, you're Brazil, you should know your place. You're not the United States, you're not Western Europe, this isn't your place. This was something that Chavez was just criticized for constantly. It's, oh, oh you would dare to cooperate with, with Iran and to become allies with Iran. And Chavez is, you know, of course, his stance was that, well, I'm going to Do what I have to do for the the good of my country and the good of my people. And if that means allying with other major oil producers for our benefit, then that's what we're going to do. You know, it's not as if the United States isn't an ally with Saudi Arabia, as if the British aren't selling arms to Saudi Arabia, as if they don't do these things when it's in their own interest. So yeah, I mean Brazil, Venezuela, other countries in the Global South—they're 100% right to form the kind of alliances that allow them to hold their own and to survive and to even try to bring some prosperity to their people. So, but well, on that uh, note,
1: I can't wait for him to run in 2022.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, I was telling someone the other day, it's maybe we're seeing the beginning of a new kind of era. I think we are a new era for South America here. The left is back in power in Argentina. They'll shortly be back in power in Ecuador. Gradually, we're seeing these countries in South America turning red again, the good kind of red, not the red that like our map turns in our elections. But we're just gradually getting back to a place where South America could be almost uniformly controlled by the left again. And you love to see it. And so let's hope that this is the beginning of a new era that we'll see uh, a, a lot of things accomplished for the people of, of Latin America who have just been oppressed and just treated
1: horribly. Give a little last word sign-off for.
0: Oh, yeah, you should probably do that. This has been Podmeas. This is John giving the official last word sign-off. Hey, <laughs> suggestion. Okay, no. And that's um, how
1: you end the podcast.
0: And that's a wrap. Stay tuned to Us. We are going to have that interview soon with Alejandra as soon as we're able to dub it into English. We're going to have an interview with my friend Alejandra on the ground here in Bolivia. Stay tuned to our uh, YouTube channel. Search for Us on YouTube. We're going to have lots of cool stuff on there. And uh, yeah, follow us on social media, all the rest of it, podmeus.com. You can find all the links to all of our online pages there. Um, yeah. I guess that's a wrap.
1: That's a wrap, guys. See you next time.
0: See you next time.